How many of you know what this is? FOMO. It's not an anime character. Well, it might be. I don't know. But who, who knows what FOMO is, right? So FOMO is the fear of missing out on something or someone more interesting, exciting, or better. Like whatever someone else is doing, it's way better than whatever we're currently doing. And so FOMO is the fear of missing out on that. But did you know that psychologists associate FOMO with obsessive compulsive disorder? Hmm, interesting. And in fact, sadly, I say this, sadly, a whole area of marketing has grown to exploit this thing in us, this fear of missing out. And so let me paint a picture for you. Uh, they're showing you on television what you're missing by not using this product. Uh, you are online and you decide you don't want to sign up for the thing, whatever it is. And as you're trying to exit, you get this little pop-up window that says, wait, if you don't act now, you will miss out on this offer and it will never happen again. Or showing us people who kind of look like us, but way better, right? Enjoying some product like a car. They seem way happier than we are, but yet we see ourselves and we're like, oh, I'm missing out on something because I don't have that. So we fear that we're missing out. So we act on impulse to make sure that we're not left behind, right? And so advertisers will actively stir up fear and envy in us to sell us things. That's kind of creepy, isn't it? Right? If you think about it. Anyway, we're going to talk about envy today. But I think it's important right off the bat to recognize that fear is the root of envy, okay? Envy is really just another version of fear. Fear that we're missing out on something. Fear that we're not getting our share. Fear that we won't have something that we need. And there's a reason that fear not is one of the most repeated commands in the Bible. It's because we're afraid a lot, aren't we? Of this, that, or whatever. And so, just to start off, the Bible's very clear about its stance against envy. This is Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And then you can check out Proverbs 23, 17 on your own. So, in this case, it's talking about uh, people maybe who aren't living for God or looking out at the world and wanting what they have because it seems better than what we're dealing with. And I would say that every person in this room faces envy. I think it's a natural thing for us as human beings to have this. I think it's one of the reasons why God tells us, hey, this isn't a good thing for us. I think it's also important for us to understand that envy and its cousin, jealousy, are some of the most dangerous sins. And here's why. Because we accept envy as a reality of our surroundings. Uh, we fear uh, we're missing out or we worry that others are getting uh, something that we want. They're getting something and I'm not getting that thing. Well, I wish that I could... Insert, right? I wish that I could go on vacations all the time. I wish that I was invited to hang out with those people. I wish that I had the fame and the recognition that she has. 
I wish that people said that about me. I wish that my husband spoke of me that way. Right? It's envy. But envy has nothing to do with our surroundings. Envy has nothing to do with our circumstances. Envy has nothing to do with even other people, guys. It has everything to do with our hearts. It's our hearts. In Mark 7, Jesus is teaching the people and he says, there's nothing outside a person that is going to, that's going into him that can defile him. Another word we could use there is corrupt. So there's nothing that's outside a person that's going into him that can corrupt him. But the things that come out of a person are what corrupt him. And so after all the people go away, Jesus being the stellar teacher that he is, he takes aside his guys, his disciples, and he's like, listen. And he clarifies what he just said. And it's in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile or they corrupt a person. So in other words, we're not at the mercy of our surroundings. We're not at the mercy of our circumstances. We have the power to say no to these sins. And we have practical options at our disposal that can help us destroy envy and its root cause, which is fear. Is anyone interested in knowing what those might be? Okay, good. You're in the right place. The rest of you guys, it was a hot week. I get it. You're tired. It's cool. Listen, we're not helpless in this whole thing. And I think it's way, way important for us to remind ourselves of that all the time. We are not helpless. We're not at the mercy of all of the things that are happening in this world because we have answers. We have things that we can do. And so we must go on the offensive and we must attack envy when it begins to rear its ugly head. And so today I want to share how we can combat envy in our lives by activating three powerful weapons. Three powerful weapons, right? Okay. So we're going to catch up with our buddy Jacob today. And this story, let me just say, especially for you teenagers that are here today, this is spicy, okay? Seriously, this is a very spicy Bible story. In fact, you're probably going to have some questions, some of you younger kids, for your parents. I'm sorry in advance, guys. Okay, that's just how it is. So we catch up with Jacob in our Bible story, right? He had this dream, these angels descending and ascending on the stairway. God's like, listen, this, I want you to understand that I am asserting, I'm affirming that this blessing now passes to you, that you're going to be the one to carry on all of the things that I promised to Abraham and then to your father, Isaac. You're, you're, all of your kids are going to be like dust and they're going to spread across the earth. The world's going to be blessed. It's going to be awesome. And of course, we all know that the Messiah comes from this whole process. That's the result of this thing. So the stairway to to the star's dream, as I called it last week, is important because it affirmed this blessing on Jacob and his descendants. The story, as I said, it's spicy and it spans Genesis chapters 29 through 32. We're not going to get through all that today and you're like, thank goodness, right? We're not going to even attempt that. You need to read it on your own because this is like a Harlequin romance. This is serious. I mean, your mind will be blown. You're like, that's in the Bible? I did not know that. I'm not sure why you talk that way, but you do in my mind right now. It's like, I did not know that that was in the Bible, Pastor Bill, but thank you for reminding me. And no thank you because my child does not need to hear that in church. Anyway, we're going to do our best. There's a lot of scripture. Read it on your own. But here's the deal. Jacob arrives in Haran. Okay, that's his destination. Mom and dad said, hey, go find a bride. From your own people. And so that's exactly what he does. He immediately encounters Rachel and he discovers to his great joy 
that she comes from his family line. They're actually cousins. Stick with me here. Which means that she's eligible as his bride. So listen, that's weird for us. We're like, right? People get arrested for that, Pastor Bill. That's pretty weird. I understand. This seems weird to us. But in this time and in this culture, it was not weird. It was actually preferred in this case. Okay? Later on, there will be prohibitions against this. But at this time, in this point in history, that's not the case. So be that as it is, you can read it on your own and enjoy all the thoughts that you might have that come with that. So Rachel is the youngest daughter of his uncle, whose name is Laban. And uh, he comes to, everybody's excited because he's in town, right? Oh, eligible bachelor. Oh, we need to marry off Rachel. This is great. So he comes to live with Laban and his family. And he's living there for a month. And he's doing all this work for him, but for no pay. And so finally Laban's like, okay, listen, Jacob, it doesn't seem right to me. You know, your family and all, and that's great. But it doesn't seem right to me that, you know, you're here working for nothing. So... What can I pay you? What, what kind of bargain can we strike? And so here's what Jacob says. Wait, am I right here? Yeah. So Jacob says, we need to understand too. There's another sister. Her name's Leah. We're going to talk about her a lot here in a minute. But Rachel, the girl that he met, was beautiful in form and appearance. And that means exactly what you think it means. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you, Laban, for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Right? This is just a little glimpse of what Laban's like. This is some foreshadowing. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Hmm. Yeah. Suave, Jacob. So on the day of the end of his agreement... And I'm sure it's like 5 a.m. in the morning. Jacob is there knocking on the tent flap, right? Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. And that is a quote, okay? Right from the Bible. So Laban throws this huge feast. And of course, any covenant, especially in this world, in the Mideastern world, uh, a covenant would require a feast as a part of that whole bargain. Like a part of the whole thing. And so we see that over and over again in scripture. Uh, These huge feasts, but especially, of course, in a marriage situation. And so they party all day long. And then that night, Jacob and his new bride retire to the bridal chamber. And the next morning he awakens and he's delighted that he finally, after seven years, has the love of his life. His lady, right? I can imagine the light glistening in from the top of the tent there. And she's turned away from him. And he's like, honey, wake up. Good morning. She turns towards him. Ah, you're not Rachel. It's Leah. It's the older sister. (laughs) He was tricked into marrying the older sister. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's ridiculous. How is this even possible? If you look at the customs in this time, and even some of these continue to this day, it's pretty interesting. The bride would have remained veiled for the duration of the marriage ceremony. And she would only remove her veil when her husband would remove it in the bridal chamber. And of course, that was in the darkness of night. And this thing that we talked about earlier about Leah's eyes. Now, historically, when I've heard that taught, it's always been Leah's eyes were weak. It meant that like she had a problem with her eyes or that she was blind or maybe she wasn't like nice to look at. I've heard that too. This idiom could also mean that her eyes made people weak as in her eyes were awesome, right? And so if Rachel was fine and Leah had these great eyes and that's all that you're seeing of her, right? Because she's veiled, remember? 
It's very possible in all the whirling and dancing and all the things that would go on with this wedding. You know, I mean, Jacob's just kind of excited to be there, just to be honest. Right. And so they retire to the darkness of the honeymoon suite. And let me just say that Jacob probably wasn't scrutinizing the situation a whole lot at that point. Okay. If you get where I'm going with that and I will move on. So he goes to his uncle Laban. He's like, listen, you tricked me. I worked for seven years. I was very clear that it was about Rachel, that it was Rachel. The one that I love was Rachel, 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 right? Okay. I was clear. Laban's like, well, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter before the firstborn. You could have told me that seven years ago, right? I would have found somebody to marry Leah. But what's interesting is Jacob receives a taste of his own deceptive medicine here, doesn't he? Remember what he did? Interesting. But Rachel must have been something else. Because Jacob agrees to work another seven years to pay the bride price for Rachel as well. Again, you're all thinking, married to two sisters? That seems kind of weird. Yeah, it does. Also something that will later be prohibited. But at this point, it was okay, I guess. And so this is only the beginning of this chess match between Laban and Jacob. The Lord is prospering Jacob and Laban doesn't want to lose out on that whole thing. And so the more family ties that he can create, the easier it will be to keep him there rather than him returning to the promised land. Because you got to think he was telling everybody, listen, I'm going to go back to this place and this is... Land was promised to our forefathers. Like, I'm sure that he's talking about these things. And so what happens here is the seeds of fear and envy are being planted. And soon they're going to be growing out of control. And so I've tried to diagram this for you just to keep it simple today. So at this point, Jacob has two wives. And if you've heard this story before, you know where we're going. But if you haven't, this is going to get really, really good for you. You're going to be excited about this. So the Bible tells us that Jacob favored Rachel over Leah. And that that broke Leah's heart. And you can read that in Genesis twenty nine thirty one. And so we go on here. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And just one word on hated here. In Hebrew, the word hated is not this absolute thing that we've made it to be in our world. Sometimes it can just mean it can be a lot less than that. It can be just that she wasn't preferred or that he liked someone more. So like when Jesus later on says, you know, unless you hate your father and mother, and we're all like, wow, Jesus, that's pretty like, that's really hardcore. We need to understand that the Hebrew word for hated isn't this absolute thing. It just means I need to be the main thing for you is what Jesus is saying. And so what this is saying is that Rachel was the main thing for Jacob. That's what's going on here. And so when Leah saw that Jacob was only interested in Rachel, God opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so Leah conceived and she, she had a son and she named him Reuben. And there he is, little Reuben. And she, and now here's the thing. As I tell you these kids' names, pay attention to what their names mean. Because all of the meanings of the names are born out of frustration in what's happening in this situation. It's really interesting. So, uh, she named him Reuben for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So then she conceived again. She had another son. And she called his name Simeon. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me the son also. And then she had another son. There he is, Levi. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she called his name Levi. And then she conceived again and she had another son. 
And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. This right here is a sermon in itself. We don't have time for it today. But in this moment, Leah realizes, okay, I'm praising the Lord for this kid because God is good. She names him Judah, and then she ceases bearing children at this point. So we get to Genesis 30, verse 1. Rachel saw, uh, when Rachel saw that uh, Leah bore Jacob no more children, or that she had no children for him, but she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. It's easy to understand. I don't think that you have to be a mother. I don't think that you even have to be a woman to understand the envy that Rachel had in this moment, right? Her sister has four children. She has no children. And children, especially sons in this culture, were your retirement plan. Uh, Life expectancy wasn't very long, especially for men. And so if the father passed away, it was your sons that would take care of you. It's your sons that would look out for you. It was your sons that stood to inherit uh, what the father had. They took care of their mothers. And the the other option we've talked about before too, ending up as a a widow or a penniless widow, widow, uh, meant you would spend your life begging and trying to figure out a way to survive. It wasn't very pretty. Not to mention, I imagine she feared once Jacob was gone how she might be treated by her sister and her sister's children. Often when we envy others, guys, it's because we fear we're missing out on what God is doing. Or we fear that God isn't taking care of our needs. Like, don't you see what I'm going through, God? I know, that's great. I'm glad that you're blessing that person. But don't you see me? So I talked about three powerful weapons that we can use to combat envy in our lives. Those are found in Psalm 37, and the first one is this. We tackle envy by activating trust. Psalm 37.3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I love this. I love this command for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love it is because it's not just trust in the Lord. It's not just, well, you just need to have more faith, brother. It actually gives us Something to do. It gives us action. It gives us a practical step on solidifying trust for God in our lives. And that is doing good, doing something, going out and serving, blessing someone. When people come to me and they're like, listen, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. I have a lot of anxiety anxiety in my life or lots of things like that, guys. Many times if we will just go out and serve someone else, If we will get the focus off of ourselves and on other human beings who might need something that we have to offer, God does amazing things in our minds and in our hearts through that. And trust for God develops. We get to see things when we serve, when we give, that we never would get to see otherwise. It's really important. It's very, very powerful. So we don't have a record of Jacob telling Rachel like about this big vision that he's had or any of that stuff. But you've got to think that he probably shared that with her. I mean, showing up without anything and having to work all those years because you couldn't pay a dowry, right? So if I'm trying to impress this girl, I'm going to at least let her know that I've got some prospects, right? Well, you know what the Lord told me. <laughs> My children would be like the dust of the earth. You want to get in on that, don't you? Right? Like you're going to be, if you're Jacob, you're going to be, you're going to share that information. So I think we can assume, I'm going to assume today that Rachel knows this. Rachel knows that God has confirmed this blessing on Jacob, that his descendants are going to be like dust going everywhere. And if God's going to take care of Jacob, 
then surely wouldn't God take care of the love of Jacob's life, Rachel? Stands to reason. Rachel's envy was a lack of trust. It was fear. Her desire for children in this culture, again, it was understandable. Fear that she'd be left on her own. Fear that God would not fulfill his promises. Or maybe that God would only fulfill his promises through her sister. Ooh. A lot of things to be afraid of here. So this is what happens. Bless you. Genesis 31. So, of course, Rachel, she envies her sister. She says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Not fruit of the loom. Fruit of the womb. In other words... Listen, it's not my fault you're not having kids is basically what he's saying here. And let me just say here that this story is full of really bad examples. And this is one of them, husbands. (laughs) This is a really hurtful and insensitive thing for him to say in this situation to his wife. Amen. (laughs) Okay, I'm making sure that you realize that this is important for us to uh, see the good and the bad examples in Scripture. Letting fear and envy take root in our lives, guys guys and gals, it can lead to bitterness. And envy has this potential to destroy even our relationships with other people, even with our husbands and with our wives. Or envy could even lead to bigger sins. We see this, of course, in Genesis 4, when Cain is envious of Abel and he ends up murdering him, right? Envy is like this little seed that if it gets out of control, it can grow and it can wreck everything. When we let envy and comparison consume us, it puts strain on our relationships. And so kind of like an echo from the past, we've been talking about these stories, right? Rachel says, you know what? I've got an idea. Why don't you take my servant Bilhah as your wife and have a baby for me with her? And so he does. He takes Bilhah as his wife. And Bilhah conceived and she bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. And then Bilhah conceived again. And listen to this one. Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And so she named him Naphtali. A lot of wrestling going on in these stories, isn't there? Interesting. So when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and she gave her as a wife to Jacob. This is getting ridiculous, isn't it? That's four wives if you're playing at home, okay? Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And then Zilpah bore another son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she named him Asher. Rachel and Leah, guys. Here's the problem with this situation. Rachel and Leah were focusing on what they didn't have instead of delighting in what God had provided. And that's a problem. So the second point is we destroy envy by activating delight. Here's what that looks like. Psalm 37, 3. Uh, This should be four through six. I'm sorry. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
It's not hard to imagine that Rachel's envy had been building over this whole time. She had to wait the seven years, right? She had to be a part of this ruse. Have you ever thought about that? Like, where was Rachel in that whole story when dad was marrying off the older sister? Like, I imagine she's in a tent tied up, like, wanting to get out. Like, that would be the best movie, wouldn't it? She's forced to comply with this trick and then wait really 14 years to finally have him as a husband. But she'd always possessed his total love and devotion. Not to mention, she has four nephews from her sister. And listen, I understand in the context of what she's dealing with, there's a part of that that would be painful. But man, kids bring joy to life. I mean, we believe that at Desperation Church, okay? So that's why there's kids everywhere. Not to mention the four other boys, two of which belong to her servant, who she gave to Jacob as a wife. Let me just tell you that when nieces and nephews, I'm from eight kids, okay? And when my brothers and sisters started having kids, it was like, it was joy, wasn't it? It was a joy. I understand there's a part of when grandparents say there's nothing better than being a grandparent. It's even better than having your own children. I hear them say that all the time. And there's a part of me that understands because when you have nieces and nephews like this dude right here, the first, the original. Man, there was so much joy having all these little kids around. It was just so much fun. So I'm not suggesting that they didn't have joy, but I'm suggesting that they certainly were not focusing on that in this story. Leah had been Jacob's sole wife for seven years. She had four children who would inherit the promises of God, but her focus was wanting to solely possess Jacob's heart. That's what she was concentrating on. Rachel and Leah, neither one of them were content. Uh, In her talk at the Catalyst Conference, there's an author. Her name's Jamie Ivey, and maybe you've heard of her. She's written a few books. But uh, she gave this talk, and it was called Three Ways to Fight uh, Discontentment. And I just want to share this quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it's really good. So she says, they're predicting in 2019, so this is now, that 111 million people in the U.S. will be on Instagram. 69 million Twitter users in the U.S. and 200 more million internationally. We live in a world where it's so easy and accessible to see what everyone else is doing. But here's what I've found to be true. That when you spend your life, when you spend your days looking at what other people are doing with their lives, it's hard to believe that your life has purpose and meaning. When you're constantly spending your day looking at what other people are doing with their lives, it is so easy to look at ours and go, why do I even matter? Look at what they're doing. Look at the opportunity that they have. I must not be doing anything. And it's not true. Most of the verses that we've been looking at, guys, that relate to envy all have to do with what the Bible describes as wrongdoers, right? People that aren't living for God, people that are out in the world and the jealousy or the envy that we have for them because they seem to be succeeding where maybe we're struggling, right? Following Jesus is hard. It is. Being envious of people who embrace selfishness versus following God. But here's what I've found to be true. We're far more likely to be envious of people we love, right? People that we're friends with, people that we know, then some strangers out there doing whatever they do, people that we love and care about. Let me give you an example. Well, they don't deserve that bonus. I mean, I know how they live. Or why do they get all the breaks? 
Lord, don't you know how much I would bless other people with that house, that car, that status, that lottery check, right? How many of you have ever had thoughts like that? The rest of you are liars. (laughs) Here's the problem with that line of thinking, guys. We're looking for things to satisfy us. We're looking for things to fill a void, a hole in our lives that can only be filled by one thing. We're looking for security and contentment in a place that we will never find it. Jesus is the only place that we'll find that. So back in the day, some of you guys know that I used to be in this funk punk metal band for Jesus. And uh, we got to do some cool things. Like it, it, when I think back on it now, I'm kind of, it surprises me, frankly, some of the things that we got to do. Uh, we got to make some albums. We got to play some music. We got to go all over the country. And I was able to meet people and see things that I would have never experienced if I hadn't had that opportunity. Yet thinking back, here's the thing. I'm amazed at how much time I wasted. How much time I wasted worrying about what other people and other bands were doing, right? Or why we didn't get to do the things that some of our friends got to do. Or even like these silly rivalries within the band itself where I wanted just as much as my music and my ideas to be used as all the other three guys. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. And so what I wonder is like, how many delights did I miss out on because I wasn't just enjoying what God had already placed in my hands, what he'd already given me? How many blessings did I ignore because I wasn't committed to God in the way that I should have been at that time? Here's the deal, guys. God wants our whole hearts, every bit of us. Warts and all, every part of who we are. He wants us. He wants all of us. And he wants us to delight in him. And when we do, he promises to give us the desires of our heart. And so a lot of times we hear that and we're like, we start making the list, right? Okay, the desires of my heart. I would like a Cadillac. I would like to not have to work another day in my life. I would like to be independently wealthy. I would like a hot air balloon. I would like three pet llamas. Like we go down the list. Of all the stuff that we want because God's going to give us the desires desires of our heart if we delight in him. But hey, that if is a really important if. Delighting in him because what that does is it aligns our heart with his heart. And we start to understand that maybe the Cadillac isn't the most important thing to God for us. Right? Maybe us handing a $20 bill to some guy so that he can actually put gas in his car is more important than the blessing of the Cadillac that we think we might deserve, right? When we delight in God, it aligns our heart with his. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. And he, by the way, he's saying this to the church, okay? These are God's people that he's speaking to. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that last line is a little bit of Peter like kind of in an edgy way throwing down the gauntlet. (laughs) If you call yourself a Christian, do these things, right? One of the things we know about Peter is he was impulsive, right? 
We see all the time Peter getting himself into trouble and even times where he's at odds with Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Sound familiar? You want Jesus saying that to you? No, right? He gets himself in trouble all the time. But here's the thing. God does this cool thing in Peter and this chutzpah that he has becomes this asset. And so he and the other disciples, they carry on this message that Jesus gave them, which is essentially this. God's kingdom is happening now. You need to turn away from living selfish lives and turn towards him. And as soon as all of you do that, he's going to, it's going to be like, a, I would say a nuclear bomb, but they didn't know what that was. It's going to be amazing. And he's going to come and he's going to reign and everything's going to be wonderful. And there's going to be peace and everyone will be blessed, right? But we all have to turn. That's what he's telling everybody. He commands them to take action here. Lay aside all the trappings of that old life that's pulling at you. And this pure spiritual milk that he's referring to is knowing God. But how? Like, how do we do that? Well, the answer is probably one that you've heard a million times, right? Prayer, uh, digging into his word, living in community with people who are pursuing him. You know, God places this instinct inside babies, doesn't he? They just kind of come out and they're hungry, right? It just happens. They're hungry. And they're hungry for their mother's milk. And here's why. Because it has everything that they need. Everything that they need to grow into healthy children. A mother's milk not only provides sustenance, guys. It has powerful antibodies that encourage brain development and cognitive development in children. And it protects the baby by boosting their immune systems naturally to fight diseases. You're like, why the science lesson, Pastor? Well, that's great. You should go work for La Leche League. That's fantastic, right? You are an advocate. Here's why this is important. Peter is encouraging us to crave God in that same instinctual way. And when we dig into the things of God, the same thing happens, right? It encourages us, our cognitive, our spiritual development. It empowers us. It strengthens us to fight off like our spiritual immune systems are strengthened. When we're truly digging into these things of God. And so speaking of babies, the baby arms race continues to escalate in our story. In Genesis 30, verse 14, Reuben, the oldest child of Leah, he went out and he found mandrakes in a field. And if you don't know what those are, they're a really weird man-shaped plant. I don't know why I did that, but they, they're kind of, they kind of look like this little puppet or something. And he brought them to his mother, Leah. And so Rachel sees those. And mandrakes, you should know, are considered to be a powerful aphrodisiac. And so Rachel, desiring, of course, to become pregnant, says to Leah, please give me some of your, your son's mandrakes. And Leah responds. By the way, I think it's great that she said, please. She's like, is it not enough that you've stolen my husband, but now you want to steal my son's mandrakes? It's right there in scripture. Look it up. So here's the thing. This is crazy. Rachel is so desperate that she ends up trading a night with Jacob for the mandrakes. I told you this was spicy. So listen, this is interesting. She's so focused on what she doesn't have that she gives up what she does have, which is her husband, Jacob. So, of course, Leah conceives. She has another son. And she says, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And then she conceived again. And she had a sixth son. And she says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. So now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. 
So she called his name Zebulun. And then afterwards, she bore a daughter, and she named her Dinah. Now, okay, I just want to say a couple things. Now, I get that the story's about the boys, and that's the inheritance and all that stuff. But it makes me really sad that the only girl in the story that's born... Like, I'm just telling you, after all these boys in most families, this would have been a moment of joy. Finally, we've got some estrogen in this family, right? Finally! But not only that, this Bible, this Bible story, it, it treats her almost even like a footnote. It doesn't even tell us what her name means or why she was named Dinah. She's like, oh, and then she had a girl and named her Dinah. And then it just moves forward. It makes me sad, but it also, I think, is another lesson in envy. So then we get to Genesis 30, verse 32, and it says that God remembered Rachel. And then it continues by saying, and God listened to her, which tells me that this whole time, I would imagine that Rachel has been praying. Despite the faults, despite the mistakes, all the things, the envy, she's still praying. God listened to her and he opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son. And said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph. You may be familiar with Joseph. He'll later get a really sweet coat of many colors. But listen to what she says after this. Okay, so she has Joseph. And then she says, may the Lord add to me another son. Really? I mean, I get the wish, but it's kind of like, okay, you just had a kid. And you're already looking down the road. And of course, she does have another son. And his name is Benjamin. God is faithful. Guys, this is kind of one of the main messages of this whole story. God is faithful and he ultimately even uses our weaknesses for his purposes. He can do that and he does do that. So the resulting sons, of course, if you don't know, are the 12 tribes of Israel come from these 12 men. The 12 tribes of Israel that God basically uses to fulfill that vision for the world that he's talking about and spreading like dust all over the place. And so here's the question I had. So was this God's plan all along? Like, is this what he wanted to happen in the way that he wanted it to happen? I don't have an answer for that. I think it's hard to say. But one thing I can speak on is that the escalation of envy in this story is not God's desire. The fear and the envy are evident in all the names that are chosen for the children. Go back and read through those on your own. Like it's basically this battle of naming your kids something to kind of jab at the other sister. Uh, Several years ago, probably 15 or so, we were only in this one little slice of the building down here where the kids area is now. And we were having a men's prayer breakfast. And uh, I remember somebody was talking about the story. And there was a young guy uh, with us who was kind of brash. He was sort of a talker, right? He was unmarried. I think that's an important point. And so he spoke up during the Bible study. He's like, four wise men. Yeah, that doesn't sound bad. That's exactly how he said it. I'll let you think about that for just a second. Moving on. One of the older, wiser, married men in the group said, Son, you have no idea what you're saying. And he's right. Listen. And that's not a dig on our wives. I think God made our wives for us. The bigger point is this, that we are not made to manage this many intimate relationships. We're not. And that's why later God starts to say things. Okay, yeah, one man, one woman, this is... Remember back in the garden? Yeah, that was really good. Like the way that I set that up. Probably should just stick to that. 
But here's the thing. This is chaos. And it's in the midst of chaos and the noise of life. That's when envy can really grab a hold of us. So in our earlier example, uh, we often, or at least I'll speak for myself, like if I'm bored or if I'm depressed or if I'm sad or something, one of the things that I will do is I will take out my phone and I will start flipping through to see what's going on with the rest of the world, right? That's me. That's what I do. And so what that does is it like increases the level of noise in my life. And so I start uh, seeing all these pictures on Instagram and on Facebook and I start comparing my behind the scenes to the rest of the world's highlight reel. We do that, don't we? We compare our behind the scenes to the rest of the world's highlight reel. And this only invites dissatisfaction. It only invites envy. So what's the alternative? Here's what it is. Silence envy by activating stillness. Psalm 37 verses 7 and 8. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over uh, yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not. That's the second time, right? That it says that. Fret not yourself. It, on, it tends only to evil. When we fret, when we worry, when we stew about these things that we see and hear, it, it only tends to evil. Nothing good comes from that. So practically speaking, speaking it means shut it down. Eliminate the noise. Get away. Find solace in silence. There's a reason, guys, that Jesus was always sneaking off to pray. And listen, if he needed to do it, we need to do it. Right? He's always sneaking off to pray. He was under constant pressure for doing and being things that the rest of the world wanted him to do and to be. And so he had to eliminate the noise and return to his conversation with the Father to remind himself of what God wanted him to be. Have you ever thought about that? God speaks, guys, in the stillness. So I'm going to be candid with you and I'm going to give you a personal example. I've kind of already revealed that I do get on social media on occasion. Right? But when I see people and people that I love, people that I still love, right? People that have either been a part of my life at one point and I don't see as often or even people that have been a part of this community in the past. When I go online and I see what they're up to and I see what they're doing, I'm just going to be honest, it can be a struggle for me. Uh, doing maybe all the things that they used to do here or uh, in a place where it seems much better than the place where I'm at personally right now. And so what happens? I start to become envious and that hurts. And then I begin to fear like I'm missing something or something's missing with me. And what happens, just as a natural byproduct of that, is I tend to overlook all of the good things that God is doing in my life. VBS this week was amazing. We had kids at our VBS that have never come into this building, but they came into that school. That's amazing. That's a blessing. Beth Beeler got slimed. That has never happened before. That was amazing. God's really great at reminding me that I only become envious when I take my eyes off Jesus. 
and I start looking around. That's how it works, right? When we take our eyes off of Jesus, off of following Jesus as closely as possible, and we start looking around at all the other things that are happening, that's when envy starts to get a foothold in our lives, guys. And really, envy is just, again, fear in disguise. But God's perfect love casts out fear. And I have no doubt that he loves me and that he loves you. I know I'm not alone in this too. And I, this is kind of a message that's been brewing in my mind for a while. And I felt like today was finally the day that God wanted me to share it. But the thing is, is we cannot let envy take root and grow uh, to control our lives. Envy is going to happen sometimes. And I think we have to chop it down immediately. So let me ask you this today. Are you chasing blessings that you think you deserve only to miss the ones that you have? What step is God challenging you to take today? Is the noise of your life threatening your trust in the Lord? How are you going to activate trust in your life to tackle envy? Are you doing things to actively destroy envy by delighting in the Lord? Do you need to up your Bible study game? What does your prayer life look like? How often do you focus on helping other people? Are you seeking stillness to silence envy? Guys, it's time to silence some of those voices that we let speak into our heads far too often. And listen, I'm not putting some moratorium on social media and TV and all that stuff. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is this, that right now the world is full of voices that are telling you who you are. Radio, television, social media, podcasts, the news. Sometimes maybe it's even a negative friend or an influence in your workplace or your school or something like that. We have to silence those voices. We have to find some stillness in our lives so that we can hear God speak and he can tell us who we are to him because that's what's important. That's the thing that lasts. When he tells us, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, I have a plan for you, I've given you this place, this time. The thing that you're doing right now in your life matters. The family that I've given you matters. We have to get in the stillness so that we can hear God speak and tell us these things. Would you bow your hearts with me today? Father... I think above all in this thing, we need your help today. We know that you want our whole hearts, God, and we know how hard it is for us to give them over to you. And it's so easy for each of us to become distracted and dissatisfied, even knowing what you've given us and missing out on the blessings that you've put in our lives, God. So my prayer today for all of these folks, for me, for this church, is that when we fear that you would remind us of your love, when we begin to worry about what we don't have, help us renew our trust in you. When dissatisfaction sets in, remind us to delight in you. 
God, motivate us to seek you in prayer. Help your word to come alive to us as we read it. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen the relationships in this church body, that each person that's here would find that place, that niche, that area that you're calling them to serve this body. And most of all, God, when we become overwhelmed with the world telling us who to be, help us to seek your voice in the stillness. Thank you for your faithfulness. We just pray that you'd help us keep our eyes on Jesus and that we'd hear your voice clearly. And all of these things I pray in Jesus' name.